welcome to the Mission Daily. In this episode, Ian chats with Brandon Shelton, Managing Partner at TFX Capital Management. Brandon shares his thoughts on the value of hiring and supporting veteran founders, the lessons he learned from the 2008 financial collapse, and what it takes to find the next generation of leaders. Welcome to another episode of the Mission Daily. We are joined remotely from across the country by special guests. Brandon, how's it going? Good, Ian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having someone from the East Coast on your, uh, on your podcast. Hey, we have East Coast people all the time. It's just, you know, a little harder uh, when you're not in studio. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Make sure you're out of your bubble. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about, which is something near and dear to our heart here at The Mission, is talking about building a sense of, of mission and investing in mission-driven founders. So Brandon is a venture capitalist that invests in a certain type of entrepreneur. Can you share a little bit more about what you're working on at TFX? Yeah, sure. So I think just like many other venture capital firms, and there's some great ones out there, and a lot of them we're proud to call our friends and mentors and co-investors. You know, I think we all try to put a level of premium on who those founders are, what their backgrounds are, what their skill sets are. You know, we're all trying to assess can they can they do the thing at pace and at scale under immense pressure. And so, as we look through those same lenses, I think a lot of the other investors do. You know, we, you know, you you and I both Ian served in the military, and so between ages 18 and 25. We took a slightly different path, a path that, frankly, less than 1% of our population takes, and that's a path towards service. We didn't go for the pay, that's for sure. <laughs> no bonus, no, no merit-based promotions, but we went to serve and lead others. And so between the ages 18 and 25, you know, we were taught leadership and were given real-world people leadership training and skills. And you, being younger than me, and you, you happen to be a post-9-11 veteran, so from the very first day that you were in the military and going through those skills and those trainings and those real world opportunities, you were leading teams with unprecedented levels of complexity, um, velocity, technology, and, and truly, and a lot of a lot of civilians will understand this. The most successful military teams are those who are the most entrepreneurial. You know, it's a misnomer that you know in the military you're just all following orders and marching in a certain line. I mean, unfortunately, that's that's a byproduct of some ignorance and some unknowns those who didn't serve because it's so unique. It's so different than how they started their professional journeys out of high school or out of college or vocational training. And so knowing that background and seeing how many other venture investors are kind of telling us back in 2015, as we started thinking about this investing thesis around veterans is that, you know, more and more and more of their successes can be attributable within a portfolio to who those founders are and their leadership skills. And so for me, I said, well, I don't know any different, but I have worked around some of the worst and some of the best leaders, both in the military and commercially. And I think I know what a high-performing veteran is, a uh, veteran leader is. I've maybe been that once or twice in my life, but in very small moments. So it's more me identifying that than others. And I said, well, if, if the trick to early stage software startup investing is to place the right premium with the right discount and your risk profile with the founders as you, as you invest and, and on behalf of your investors, I'd rather pull from this pool of talent where I know they've been pressure tested and they have had real people management and operational, uh, not only training, but experiences. So, you know, the joke in the military community is that, you know, some of the first major failures you know, I know I had happened in those first few months on active duty at age 22. And it's built that way. It's built to make young leaders and listen officers fail and fail often. Why? So that you can learn how to learn, right? You can learn how to lead. And so, you know, if you're managing 40 people, 
at age 22 as I was, you know, it's a very different environment than managing 40 people when you're 48 years old working at a Fortune 50 company, right? Or being an individual contributor, being an analyst at, at a financial services firm at age 22. So I blended that all together. Long answer to your short question, Ian. But for us, it's if we believe, like most, it's more about who those people are as founders and leaders of these young businesses, where there's strategic operational and tactical pressures at every minute, it seems. You're always working in an austere environment with a cash burning clock against you. I'd rather bet on founding teams that has at least one of what we call these high-performing veterans, not any veteran, a very small rifle shot inside that founding team, because I think, I think it's a signal of some additional leadership, resiliency, and other traits that probably those founders have rallied around. Within their first portfolio, we're already seeing that happen, which has been pretty neat. So that's our thesis is that you know, B2B, SaaS, tech-enabled services, early stage, where we can have maximum impact. We put the highest premium on who this high-performing veteran or veterans are within the founding team and then all the founders. And then we work outward. You know, we check everything else. I think most guys check the software, the product, the market, the customers, the sales, you know, financial rigor, legal rigor. We really, really try to spend as much time as possible making sure we've identified this founding team and how it's comprised. Yeah, and I think that what's so interesting about this approach is that we have so much emphasis in America. And, you know, we have listeners from all over the world, but here in America around like building leaders and leadership and leadership training. And a lot of that stuff is for, you know, Fortune 1000 type companies. A lot of it is for once someone becomes a middle level, mid-level manager or, you know, you go into the leadership program or whatever it is. And what's so interesting about your thesis is that if you're investing in startup founders, it's really, really hard to find startup founders that have that type of leadership experience or have been through those programs, unless they've been through some type of, you know, leadership kind of training in their in their previous career. But there's a lot of startup founders that are young. There's a lot that haven't managed teams before. And so if you're saying that one of the members on the team is a military veteran who's been through professional leadership training, I mean, for me, we went through 47 months before I was even, you know, 22 years old. And then for the next five years in the military, you know, countless lessons over and over and over and over again. But for in the startup world, that's really, really rare. And I think one of the things that is so interesting about this idea of being mission-driven is around someone who can kind of understand that they're building a company with purpose. And it's we've been working on an article that should hopefully drop either today or this week when this podcast airs about being mission-driven. And like us as a company at The Mission, we only want to work with other companies who have a mission. And I think that part of that is because whether it's the startup world or business world, there's a lot of people out there that don't really care. They don't really have a future that they want to create. They just want to, you know, take a product and, you know, put it into market and don't really think about like, why are we doing this? Like the why of why we're creating this, this company. And those are the type of people that we want, we want to work with the people who have a why. And if you see some of the best founders in the world, they're folks that, you know, relentlessly pursued that why. What do you see in whether it's your portfolio companies or what have you seen historically as to why that gives you an advantage as a founder to have a mission, to have something as a company that you go back to? Yeah, Ian, it's a great question. I think for the listeners, I, I want to make a couple points of, for clarity is I do not think all veterans 
are superior founders or people than non-veterans in the United States. That's, that's, not, that's actually quite the contrary. There are bad apples in every group, every affinity group, every state, every business line. But what you're talking about here gets the crux of what we're talking about. So if you operate, and I have to give you a couple examples for the listeners, you know this as well as I do. Why do I say between ages 18 and 25? As I look back at that period of time for myself, my entire family served multiple generations, all doing very different things. Most of my, most of my investors, most of, a lot of people I know, is that there's a couple things that happened in that period of time. And it doesn't matter if you're enlisted or officer. First, everyone knows how much everyone makes in the United States military. It's public knowledge. So imagine your startup or your small business or your large business, if you knew at all times, everyone's salary at all times. Second thing is you do not make bonuses in the United States military, period. Not performance bonus. There may be reenlistment bonuses, very small dollar amounts, but you don't, you know, a lot of guys I remember working on Wall Street and others, you know, yeah, I want to make, I want to make a $500,000 bonus or $50,000 bonus or $1,000 bonus. You just don't have that, right? So there's no bonus. Everyone knows how much everyone makes as your public employees. And the third thing is that during that period of time, enlisted officer, all branches, and it seems to have been the same way for the last few decades, is that unless you do something really bad, you will all be promoted on the exact same timeline, right? So you're not really jockeying against the person to your left and right to be better than them as you would maybe in an enterprise, right? I remember my first couple months into Wall Street when I was 28 years old. I mean, it was dog-eat-dog. I remember, and I've been warned about this, but people of my same sort of pay grade and responsibility levels, I mean, they would purposely try to, you know, passive-aggressively outperform you in front of a boss. I know it happens in all businesses. It happens in the military too, but it seems to be more frequent in the commercial arena than in the military. And why? Because of that condition. And so when you blend all that together, what is the United States military trying to do for its young entrants, which comprise the majority of the military or in those age groups? What are they trying to do? They're trying to force you to be a part of something bigger than yourself. So if I'm forming an organization with these young people pulling on all 50 states, and I'm throwing them into this intensive, bizarre foreign environment, whether it be boot camp, West Point, officer candidate school, whatever it is, ROTC, enlisting, and I mean, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, everybody's path slightly different depending on the branch. But ultimately, the number one byproduct I think they're trying to do, aside from giving you technical skills, is that they are trying to get you to say, I'm here, I'm serving for my country, I'm serving for my team, I'm serving for the person to my left and right, because I'm not getting paid. Well, I should get paid. I'm not making a financial bonus and I can't get promoted. Uh, you get paid more faster than my peers. So I, I might as well do it for something bigger than myself. In my opinion, and at TFX, they are trying to collapse your heart and your mind into one. And that is what mission-driven, purpose-driven folks are. Not every veteran, not everyone on active duty. But the byproduct is that sort of, I'm working for something bigger than myself for my own financial rewards. And I think that is the number one thing that hardest thing for veterans to reconcile as they come out of that environment, whether you serve four years, three years, 20 years, 30 years, is, okay, I'm going to go from that to an individual contributor role outside the military. So it's not all veterans are purpose-driven. <laughs> not all veterans do well in those environments. Not all of them recreated in business. But if less than 1% of our society serves in the military, but yet 10% of all small businesses in the United States are owned and run by a veteran. And that, by the way, is a low number. It's, it's, it's assumed to be higher. Something is translating at the individual level, that individual person, 
into their business arena where they're recreating that mission, that purpose. They are taking austere resources, pulling them together, and trying to recreate in a commercial environment, especially a small business environment, that sort of environment where, hey, let, let's be a part of this small business, like for us. Let's be part of a startup venture capital firm that frankly pays awful. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that. Very small venture capital firms, the economics are terrible for those who run them. So why do it? You've got to do it for something bigger than the pay. It's got to be the mission. Why start a company? Why leave your six-figure job and start a company? Yeah, we we're capitalists. We want to make a ton of money. But why do it, right? And so for us, we try to stay away from the sort of hammers looking for the nail, like you mentioned, Ian. You know, there's people who are like, it, it, it's more of a mental challenge. Like, hey, I want to go work for myself. I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I'm a multi-time entrepreneur. I mean, any of those comments and initial calls with us throw up flags. But if you come to me and say, listen, I think I was put on this earth to solve this problem right here, right now. And I don't care what you call me. I don't care about anything else but solving this problem. You will attract teammates, investors, and ultimately customers who believe in that too, right? It's, it, now, we want to make money through it, right? It's a money-making capitalistic endeavor, and I'm all for it. Trust me. But that's where we see it recreated. Right. So, and it's normally been harvested. If you talk to co-founders around this one high performing veteran in our portfolio, I mean, it emanates from them. They're all different individuals, different backgrounds. They, they did different things in the military and they've done different things since very unique, but they all went through the same sort of window of time and they all reacted to it differently. But the one thing that stuck with them and they've carried forward in the commercial endeavors, how do I set a purpose? How do I get others to believe in it? right? So that we can move heaven and earth against all odds. Everybody's saying we're going to fail. The numbers say we're going to fail. You know, we've got big competitors all over the place. How do I, how do I get them bought in? Because I've got to believe in myself. So, so again, long answer, short question, Ian, but that's how I personally think the world exists. I'm not saying I'm right, but <laughs> it, it really backstops why we back purpose-driven founders. And you can find those purpose-driven founders outside the military too. For us, it has to be, and this is what Nathan and I talk about it, you have to believe you were put on this earth. This is not a religious statement or anything like that. It is to solve this problem. And all you do is think about this problem. And all you want to do is, is solve it to the point where you would step aside. If someone came to you and said, hey, this person can do it better and faster. You can still be a part of it. But if you move over, give up some of your ego, give up some of your control and let them do it, you'll get there faster. And my founders, yeah. I'm telling you right now, they'll say, yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm all in because all I care about is solving the problem, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, whether it's folks in the military or not, it's that same thread that is kind of in every founder that is, that is solving those problems. You know, like one of the folks we interviewed on the Mission Daily a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago was Josh Reeves, the founder of Gusto. He's not a military veteran, has, has no, although he is an Eagle Scout, which is pretty great. But yeah, that, and they're actually sponsoring the Mission Daily now. So shout out to Gusto. But you know, he is so laser focused on solving payroll problems and building gusto for the long term, right? Like that sort of stuff is really, really interesting. And if you look at some of the founders that have been so successful, you know, Fred Smith from FedEx is, is another great example. You know, Fred Smith, everyone was like, you're going to compete with the US Postal Service. And he's like, yeah. And then they're like, well, you're crazy because like, why would you ever do that? And he's like, well, let's, yeah, I think his business plan was like rejected by pretty much everyone. 
but Fred Smith is, you know, is a military veteran. And he kind of just said, I think that there is a future that someone can be better than the postal service at doing what they do. And then he built, you know, FedEx and he's one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time, but he was laser focused on making that happen. And, you know, with Nitin, yeah. who is one of the co-authors uh, of the post that we're working on, who's, you know, the co-founder of Unshackled Ventures, he's looking at immigrant founders that have immigrated to the U.S. from other from other countries who have started companies that are about very specific problems and they have that grit and adversity that they've gone through in their life and they know that, you know, it could be a lot worse, but I need to make the change happen for this exact purpose, for this company that I'm building. And it's really, really important. A hundred percent. I mean, but think, think about that. So why take that path, especially as an immigrant? This is what Nit and I talk about. Why take that path where at any moment you have to play the visa game, right? And you, let's say you start a family and everything else. There's a chance it, it could unwind on you. But why go through all that to start your business, right? And take that type of risk. Well, you have to believe that you were solving a real problem and you're going to put everything about it. I mean, for me, for me, a byproduct is, and Ian, you know me a bit, aside from my intensity and my pace, do you think I'm going to stop what I'm doing? Because people think it's wrong or they laugh that we're small VC or we're, you know, we're dumb people in Charlotte or East Coast, some of the comments we've had. How hard no, it is to raise that. capital to a new fund. Okay, okay, so fine. I'm not doing it because I my name is on it. So I'm like, oh, I don't want to fail. I just believe in what we're doing. So I don't lose sleep on it, any of it. I get frustrated. Don't get me wrong. I get down in days, no different than any other founder. But until we put a, a massive dent in the universe on this side, I'm not, I'm not stopping. And so for me, that's, that's sort of, and Kevin, our team and our investors, that's what we're looking for. And it, it doesn't always have to be isolated to veterans. I just think it's more dense there because it's, it's built and organized and trained on. So there's, there's a talent pool there, but you know, it, it is, are you relentless? I, I, I'll give you an example. I was in Houston in August and I was talking to a round table of, of individual investors. And so these are people who run like private equity firms and growth equity firms. And we were just talking about leadership and companies and what they invest in. And to a person, all of them in the totality of all of their experiences said where they have made the most successful investments is where that CEO, founder, business leader, you know, has expressed to them in the early days just this unbridled intensity and relentlessness to get, to get it done and see it through, no matter what their background is, veteran or not. And we talked about this, and, and it's not to say you're put blinders on. I'm not talking about the all thrust, no vector, high energy, trample, a lot of people to get there. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a consistent, unwavering, five or six year, relentless pursuit of networking, meeting people, getting feedback, adapting, learning, repeat over and over and over again, right? As you build your business. So first six months is great, cool, got the PowerPoint, I got the business card, I'll update LinkedIn, everybody tells me I'm amazing, wow, you're the man, you're starting a business. Get, get beyond six months unless you're you know, personally wealthy. It becomes economically painful. It's all fun and games in the first six months. You get to that year, year and a half mark, where you're just draining your 401k savings, expanding out your credit cards, you can't join your friends on trips. Okay, that's where you're tested. And so when you think about Fred Smith, I mean, I'll throw Phil Knight in there from Shoe Dog. Look at Hugh McCall, who started Bank of America, GoDaddy's founder. I mean, these are all veterans. And they will talk about how when they met those resistance moments, they know about themselves as individuals that in that military structure, they had been in environments that were tougher, number one. But number two, 
they've been part of something bigger than themselves. So they, they, they were already built as individuals to think that way, right? To, to, to use that to overcome adversity. And as you got to you know, various different barriers and what would be some considered terminal, they got past them, not because they had blinders on, right? And they're on a one-way trip to blow themselves up. <laughs> we know founders like that. They just believe in their heart and soul that they, they have a role to play in solving this problem, right? They're purpose-driven. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because, you know, people who I talk to who are like, why do you guys at the mission even care about like any of this? Why do you, you know, put on your you know website that we only work with mission-driven founders and or mission-driven companies and things like that? And I think that part of it is a little selfish. And, I, and I'm sure you'd probably agree with this is like, I would rather work with those people. I would rather work with people who are committed to something, who are going to, you know, whether it's big company or small, I would rather work with people who are trying to achieve something, who are trying to build the future in a way that helps other people, than work with people who are just into all of this for themselves. And I think, you, you know, you have a really good example of how that happened back in 2008 when you know, when the housing crisis, when the bubble burst and all that sort of stuff, and you were working in a role with other people who were selfish, who other people who only looked out for number one and kind of what happened there. Can you share that, that story? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I left active duty in the military in 2004. My wife who was also active duty. We, we made the joint decision to leave. Obviously that's a hard time to leave as, as the country's going to war and all your peers are going down range into Iraq and whatnot. You know, networked my way to the New York City area, and by the fall of 2004, I was able to join a British bank that was rapidly growing its U.S. enterprise. So people remember, you have the dot-com explosion in the early 2000s, so really Wall Street at that time, and the economy was really recovering, right, especially post-9-11 as well. So 2004 or five, you know, it was kind of the heyday, right? Money was going in one direction, kind of like it is in venture capital right now. Valuation was going one way, hiring going one way. Sort of hire very quickly. Everybody makes bonuses. You know, rinse and repeat. And so that's what I joined. So I joined that and worked my way up in five and six and seven, and then moved over to Bear Stearns, 85 year old bank. You know, had a great track record. You know, really hard to get into. I was able to interview and take a junior trading role over there in 2007. And I remember making a comment to my wife. I was like, "Wow, I've actually done it. I've actually <laughs> left the military and manually." transitioned myself to Wall Street into a proper revenue generating role. And so that's obviously the time when we decided to start trying to have kids and whatnot. So fast forward to 10 years ago this past March, Bear Stearns failed. You know, we went out of business and we were sold in the fire sale for $2 to JP Morgan, which later got modified up a bit. I mean, then two weeks later, we had our first kid, but I'll never forget that week, that March of 2008, a couple of things. Number one is I've been growing, personally, I've been growing increasingly uncomfortable for those couple of years around the people I was around, you know, you, you, you take, it's in its rawest form for those who've worked, you know, let's say fixed income sales and trading, you're sitting on a trading floor. So imagine row upon row of desks and you're literally sitting side by side by side, 300 people within the eyesight of one another. And everyone is paid individually ungodly amounts of money, you know, for the upside for bonus, everybody low salary, high bonus, and you're paid to make as much money as physically fast as possible to the point where you would actually screw over your teammate to the left and right just to make an extra dollar. And if you confronted them, as I did a couple of times, they looked at you funny, like, why? <laughs> why are you doing that? That's, that's what we do here. And so 
that's how the machinery was built. And generally speaking, you know, and, and definitely in our bank and a lot of other banks, people were in leadership roles and, and accountability roles, not based on their leadership training or skill set, but more on were they the highest revenue producer. So my chain of command between me and the CEO, obviously many layers, this pretty junior, junior guy there, you know, m- most of them, frankly, had very little leadership skill set or training. They may have been great people, but they'd never been put through a pressure test, right? And so as January, February gave way to March and the recession was like in full boil, in that particular week, Bear Stearns underwent with a traditional bank run by two hedge funds. And we were in a blackout period, so we couldn't release our earnings. And our CEO was playing in a bridge tournament in Florida. That's wild. You know, we're not that big of an organization. We're a 13,000-person organization, mainly contained in one building there in New York City. And, and the heartbeat of all your trading is happening there. And it wasn't like Monday happened and all, all hell broke loose. This had been building systemically for those who worked on Wall Street from the fall, right? Countrywide the endeavors in, 2000, um, in August of seven, get into the, the winter. So we had, we had enough early warning signs as an organization to shore up ourselves, do some other types of things to make ourselves healthier and withstand more pressure, but we didn't. And so the week that was essentially the decision, you know, the, the week that we failed, our leaders couldn't handle it. And so that bank run just happened and went right through us. And I'll never forget glancing up on that Thursday, watching our CEO, or Wednesday, seeing our CEO in his golf shirt from Florida on CNBC. And yet all hell's breaking loose. I mean, we had phone banks that had like a hundred lines and all of them were blinking at the exact same time. <laughs> like everyone wanted to trade and get out of their positions and whatnot. And the street was highly volatile this time, but everybody kind of felt like, Bear Stearns, you're the, you're patient zero. You're the sick one. <laughs> you must go to make all of us healthier. And I'll never forget that Friday morning. That Friday morning, we got downgraded by the credit bureaus, which is kind of funny because in hindsight, they were some of the ones who helped catalyze the recession with some of the ratings on mortgage products, but I digress. And I'll never forget, it's like 9, 9.30, and they downgraded us. And I'll never forget some of our leaders, like in full eye, I mean, where we can see them. Like just say, hey, we're screwed. And they just dropped their phones and walked out. And these are guys making millions and millions of dollars every year. Millions. Taking helicopters off the top of our buildings. But they just quit. They're like, ah, we're done. I'm going to my next. I'm going to my Hampton's house. Right? And then I watched devastation, right? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of my teammates, ignorantly, had a lot of their personal wealth tied up into Bear Stearns stock. And because they were, we were in a blackout period, you couldn't, you couldn't unload it. And the guy sat next to me lost his entire retirement, $2 million in about, I don't know, a day and a half, right? I mean, so, so you watch the personal devastation, but you, to your point, what you're bringing up is, is that when you put people in leadership roles where, where there's a lot of money flying around, there's a lot of vanity, there's a lot of power, a lot of abuse of power, and the markets turn, and they don't have any level of leadership training or resiliency, it's done. I remember sitting there and like, not laughing. I mean, people wanted to go to the bar that Friday night and start crying. And I went as a teammate, but people were like literally like sitting on the floor in the bar crying in their suits. And I mean, sadly, you know, as we all know, in the weeks later, some of my coworkers killed themselves and at other banks. It was bad protests. I mean, it's, it's not a fun summer that from that point forward. But, but on that day, I just remembered like, are you serious? Like work the problem. That, in my opinion, that entire event was avoidable. And definitely Lehman Brothers a couple a couple months later. But I think that's the story you're trying to get at. But I mean, you know, you'll get some founders who are like, oh, Brandon, this is how the startup land works. And this is how I'm going to handle cash. And you kind of laugh. You're like, okay. 
I was at an 85-year-old company that lost $17 billion cash in one week. All right, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. You can be as stubborn and as hard-headed as you want, but I don't forget my personal experiences. You're not a bank. I get it. I understand that. But if that, if that can happen to a large institution, I think anything can happen with, you know, two-man, five-man, 10-man, 30-man startup. And so you're not saying you need to build contingency plans for that, but you need to think through leadership. Do I have leaders, you know, Worst case, best case, most likely case, those type of things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's a really powerful story because this is what happens when growth at all costs meets, you know, meets greed, right? And like, again, the point of building a profitable company is to build, you know, regardless of the mission of the company, people are trying to build profitable companies. That being said, when you don't have a mission, when you don't have a purpose and you don't have ethical leadership, like those are the consequences. The consequences are enormous. And so, you know, to bring it back to like why we think this stuff matters, why I was excited to have you on, on the show and I appreciate you taking your time is we need to find the next generation of leaders who don't do things like that, who don't look the other way when, you know, things are being done incorrectly, who don't foster a organization where, you know, lying, cheating, stealing are regular or commonplace or who, you know, nip that stuff in the bud right away. And, and I think that that's what's so exciting about what you're working on at TFX is, you know, one of those solutions is, is having, you know, military veteran founders who serve the right way as part of these teams. You have someone who is worldly, who has seen things, who have, has served at a minimum for something greater than themselves, that's important. There's a lot of people who have never served anything other than themselves. And that's okay. Like, you know, it, it, that's fine. But, but there's a competitive advantage there. If you're looking for ways to find an advantage, there's an advantage, a huge advantage, a huge competitive advantage to find leaders that build things the right way. You know, sometimes we get a little too lost in the product and not enough into the leaders. And there are consequences to that. I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, I've had, I ha I've had some questions of some folks. I actually had a guy ask me, he goes, what gives you the right to manage other people's money? If you've never been a venture investor before. And I just said, Hey, nothing gives me the right. It's not a right. It's a privilege to manage my investors money, especially as a startup investor, right? These people, just like our founders, they're buying into the story and the potential because I haven't delivered any results yet. Right. But I'll tell you what does give me a unique and my team and our investors unique angle is the totality of these experiences. I just personally have worked with like what you just said, great leaders and awful leaders. It's not confined to the military. I've seen horrendous leadership from ex-military guys, <laughs> horrendous, even on active duty. So it's not to say every veteran is an awesome leader. I've also seen extraordinary leaders in the, in the non-veteran space. I think the thing that's missing in this conversation, when I talk about it, is I, I try to stress it's the individual. Who are you? How were you raised? What's your story? I mean, we give them some president, you know, a lot of guys when their pitch calls, I mean, they'll go right into their automaton of they're trained to do that, right? Because some larger VCs, junior person, 28-year-old analyst is saying, you've had eight minutes, go. It's hard to convey your story. It's hard to convey your background. It's hard to convey the problem and your passion of solving in such a tight window, right? There's nothing wrong with that, but for us, it's like, I want to know who the individual is because I'm trying to make early decisions on who is this person? What makes them tick? How do they make decisions? Right now, I've met a ton of founders. I'll leave their names out for the podcast who 
are this high performing veteran, but just are working on a product or market where it's like, mm, this is not a fit for us, right? I don't see the outcome or ROI with the product, but you, you know, that person as an individual or a group of people, 100% have it, right? Have everything that we're looking for. But it's, it's who that individual is and how they react to their life experiences. So for me, I, I fired people. I have been fired. I watched this Bear Stearns event blow up. I've worked with a startup consulting firm where we hired a bunch of people and then we fired a bunch of people. <laughs> We've missed payroll when I was at the consulting firm. I've worked for family-owned business where you need to, to make uh, strategic initiatives work. You need to project out on a 20, 30-year ROI basis, not a two-year ROI basis because they're you know, they're focused on wealth preservation through the long run and now in the venture space. So I've literally personally recreated myself a number of times. I can't say I'm great in any of them, but I'm framed no different than you are, Ian, no different than any founder. You're framed by the totality of your, how you were raised, how you learn and the mistakes and successes you've had in that journey, right? That's why, that's what we try to diagnose the TFX. I think uh, Nitin tries to do the exact same thing, especially his focus on immigrant founders. Where are you from? Why are you here? How'd you get here? How'd you find this problem? What have you done to try to solve it till this point where we had this call? You know, and I think that's a really powerful way to get to know who the people are between, you know, between their ears, but also in their heart. You know, are they purpose-driven? I love it. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. We'll definitely have to have you have to have you back here soon and keep up the great work at TFX. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Appreciate all that you're doing there at the mission. It's an honor to be on with you guys. You guys are doing some really great work, and so just proud to support you. You're the man. Thanks. All right, Ian. Take care. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.